Ladies and gentlemen, Randy here. Welcome to the Trap Draw. Before we get into today's interview, I want to thank Precision Pro Golf for being a sponsor. No Laying Up is brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf, the official rangefinder of NLU. Precision Pro wants to make sure every swing you make is a confident one. Their lineup offers rangefinders for every skill level at an unbeatable price. The award-winning Best Value Rangefinder NX7 Pro Slope is your classic point-and-shoot upgraded with lightning-quick internals. Or, if you want the experience of a caddy on your bag, take a look at the R1 Smart Rangefinder with advanced features like wind assist, GPS to front, middle, back, and personalized slope-adjusted distances. With industry-leading customer service, the team at Precision Pro wants to make sure that improving your game is the only thing on your mind. When you call or have a question, a fellow golfer will be there to answer it. This golf season, take the next steps and upgrade your game by adding Precision Pro to your bag. Head to your local Dick Sporting Goods or Golf Galaxy to see their rangefinders, or go to precisionprogolf.com and save $20 with code NOLANGUP. All one word, NOLANGUP. Dial in your distances and take guessing yardages out of your game with Precision Pro Golf. I am joined today by a, a great guest. I know I say this every episode, but really, really looking forward to this conversation. My guest is Christopher Leonard. He is a business reporter and author. He's written three books, The Meat Racket, Cokeland, and his most recent one, The Lords of Easy Money, which I'll be talking to him about today. Uh, he's a graduate of the University of M Missouri Journalism Program, currently serves as the executive director of the Watchdog Writers Group, a fellowship program at Missouri, which awards stipends to authors working on books around important social issues. And you can find him on Twitter at C Leonard News. Christopher, good morning. Good afternoon. I guess where you are. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. If you don't mind, I'd love to start with what the Watchdog Writers Group is at the University of, of Missouri. If you could kind of touch on that, it, it looks and sounds really cool. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, a really important thing to me. So I guess as background, I'm a, I'm a print journalist, you know, <laughs> which is a tough line of work to be in these days. And I'm very dedicated to uh, that sort of, I mean, I hate to say it, but like that old school kind of journalism where it's the reporter's job to get out there, to uncover new facts, to put it together in a fair way and an easy way to understand, to give to readers. Like that's, that's my life's work. That's what I'm totally dedicated to. And it's, it's hard to do. I mean, our business has been upended by these huge economic changes. Uh, half of the print journalists in the U.S. have lost their job over the last decade. It's just been punishing. Okay. So, I've, I've, I've kind of moved into this niche, I guess you'd say, of doing 
books first, like writing the kinds of books that, that you just described, you know, Coke Land or the Lords of Easy Money, and then doing sort of journalism, daily journalism around it. Like you report on a book for a long time, and then you can break out these chunks of reporting into a magazine piece or what have you. Needless to say, it's really hard to do this kind of work. It takes years. It takes resources. And I was really lucky to connect with a fellowship program back in 2012 that offered me a stipend uh, to do this kind of work at this place called New America in Washington, D.C., okay? So over the years, I realized we needed fellowship programs like this that would give financial support to authors doing responsible journalism, deep journalism, journalism that's in the public interest, journalism that's fair. Uh, we, we need to support that kind of work. So we built this fellowship program at the University of Missouri, the Watchdog Writers Group. And what we do is, is we'll give a stipend to uh, a, a reporter who needs to take time off of their day job. Like I'm thinking one of our great fellows is this woman in Austin, Texas named Pamela Koloff doing a book about the criminal justice system. She works for ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine, but she needs some time off. Like she needs some, like a year, you know, which is a long time to work on this book. So we'll give her a grant, but then critically, we partner our authors with a young reporter at the Missouri School of Journalism, uh, usually grad student, sometimes undergrad. And that reporter will work side by side with the author to, to do the deep reporting that goes into the book. So it's a mentorship program that teaches that student. And then our, our students will usually produce an investigation of their own. So look, big picture headline, we are trying to support and, and invigorate print journalism in the middle of the country through the Watchdog Writers Group. And uh, we're trying to also maintain and instill the best practices and ethics of this old school journalism to keep it alive as we head into this like next era of journalism with whatever comes next. So sorry if that's a little long-winded, but I'm pretty passionate about it. And as a bit of background about yourself, when did journalism, print journalism, when did that really crystallize for you as something you wanted to pursue professionally? I, I'm, I'm, and I, I guess on top of that, how did you settle into, I guess, business world, for lack of a better word? I, I don't know if you would describe it as like broad business. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've been a book nerd since I was a little kid. I mean, I've loved writing. I've loved reading. I've loved books since I was little. And it was really in college that I discovered journalism. And, and, and to be totally honest, I was kind of a knucklehead teenager. You know, I know I wasn't the first. And it was really in college that my brain kind of opened up to this bigger world around me. And I started reading newspapers for the first time and just realizing like, my Lord, there's a big world out there, a lot going on. And, and I happened to be coincidentally at the University of Missouri, which had, I'm you know, born and raised in Kansas City. I went to Mizzou and they had this great journalism program and, and they, they teach by doing. They literally have their own radio station, their own TV station and their own newspaper. And so I took this class over summer where I worked at the, the newspaper called The Missourian and literally my first day on the job. I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It was so amazing. What was amazing about it is that it gave me this license to explore my curiosity. Journalism gives you this reason to go knock on somebody's door and ask them about their life. And, and I'm a pretty curious, I'm not going to say nosy, I'm a pretty curious person by nature. And I was just like, I love this line of work. And then honestly, like this sounds cheesy, but it's true. Like the whole public interest part 
Mm-hmm. Like this feeling like you're participating in the democratic system that, you know, people read the paper, they learn what's going on, and then they can be active citizens. And to like be in the middle of that process and be in the middle of the conversation was just something really invigorating to me. So I got into journalism and really never went back and then graduated. And uh, I, I, okay, there's two components here, investigative journalism and why I'm a business reporter. Mm-hmm. And investigative journalism is just like, as I learned more, I, I developed these heroes, these like old school investigative reporters like Bob Woodward, Seymour Hirsch, these guys that would like expose government secrets. And I thought, you know, that really excites me. And I got to be honest, I got into business journalism because that was like the first job that was open when I was a cub reporter. There's this full time business job. And I got into it and again, was just so fascinated by it. And I am obviously, I keep coming back to this thing about public interest journalism. And I feel like a reporter's core job is to describe the world accurately to readers. And and particularly for us investigative reporters, you want to write about powerful people and institutions and describe how things really work. And, 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 And so because I was a business reporter, I just focused on these big corporations. Like my first book, The Meat Racket, is about Tyson Foods, the world's biggest meat company, and more broadly kind of about how these companies have rearranged the rural economy. And so I wanted to write about this institution that's really important at the center of our rural economy and so on with Coke Industries and the Federal Reserve. So I wasn't planning on asking this, but mm-hmm. just listen to you speak. I mean, that, that stuff that gives me optimism. I, I'm curious, do you ever find trying to hold on to print journalism and keep up the standards and, and bring along a new generation and, and, and support you know, people out there? doing good work. Do you ever get daunted by it in today's environment where it, it seems like, you know, print journalism, especially and, and journalism in general is obviously coming under fire. And we're trying to figure out as a society, like what, you know, what, what is journalism? It, it, does that question make sense? Oh my God. It, it makes so much sense. And we're just going to get really deep, really fast on this thing, man. Um, I'm daunted every day and I'm, uh, you know, look, I'm not going to lie. I'm just going to answer totally honest. Sometimes I, I feel despair. And, and let me let me articulate that. Uh, I spend, you know, uh, not to toot my own horn, but like I, I work really hard. You know, like I joked one time that if I wrote a self-help book, it would be called the seven day work week and no one would buy it. Like that's the only way I can like get done what I need to get done. I work a lot and all the work is, is directed toward creating a book or an article that I can put in the hands of a reader and, and they can learn and then, and then act on what they learn as citizens. So like the entire proposition of being a journalist rests on this idea that in a democracy, like the facts matter, learning matters, people can act. We have democratic institutions that can like respond to that. And, and, and sometimes you wonder as a, as a reporter, if that machine works anymore is like not to get into it, but you know how, how volatile things are these days and just how incredibly polarized things are, which I experienced firsthand. Like when this book, the Lords of easy money came out, I was doing, you know, right-wing shows like Tucker Carlson and left-wing shows like democracy now. And I mean, I'm talking to audiences that don't even talk to each other anymore. Mm-hmm. It's 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 dispiriting. 
And, and, and then furthermore, you know, you throw on top of that, the, the kind of, you just can't describe it as anything other than economic collapse of our business. And then, you know, it's tough, but at the end of the day, look on any front, everybody can have enough room to be discouraged about things, but you just got to keep going. And I really believe you got to keep doing what you're passionate about. You got to keep doing what you think is right and try to build what you think is good, even in the face of obstacles. And that's really the only choice we have, I think, as people. You got, you got to keep going and you got to do what you think is right, even if it looks challenging. So, you know, that's why I keep at it. Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you The Lords of Easy Money is the first book of yours that I've read and I loved it. And I think exactly to your point, I feel smarter and, and better informed for having read it. Uh, I feel like it's helped crystallize or even shape new ideas. I think it's written in a way that's broadly appealing to your point. You know, I, I think folks on the right, folks on the left, there's, there's such, there are themes that, that will play to both of those people. Right. I, I don't think in certain instances, I, I really, I, I hope we're not as far as part as, as it can seem, but, uh, I feel like we're getting a little bit uh, off field here, and that's that's my fault. So, so directing it back to the book, uh, The Lords of Easy Money, it was just released earlier this year, January 2022. I guess where I would love to start is, you know, what was the genesis of this book? And I guess specifically, what prompted you to really start going down the road of examining the Federal Reserve? Thank you for saying going down the road, not going down the rabbit hole. It's like, <laughs> let's face it, once you get going on this Fed stuff, it is like that. And I mean, you know, quickly, I don't feel like it's off topic at all, because when you look at the roots of this book, one of the things that's so fascinating, I love these parts of our society that just defy the easy categorization of left, right. And this is one of those fields where the politics of blue team versus red team breaks down really quickly. When you look at the central bank, the Federal Reserve, what it's been doing for the last 10 years and kind of the effects it's having on the world and the, the, the politics gets scrambled up really fast and, and it gets weird. So, okay, what's the genesis for this book? Why did I get into it? Um, I was actually reporting my previous book, Cokeland, about Coke Industries. And, you know, to the earlier point, one of the great things about this job is you get to meet all kinds of people. And I was interviewing this super brilliant investor type guy for my previous book. And he wanted to talk to me on background. So I don't talk about his name and not trying to be like, it's not like state secrets or something, <laughs> but, you know, people like to just talk freely. Sure. And this brilliant guy in June of 2016 talked to me for five hours about the Federal Reserve and quantitative easing. Okay. And I had been a business reporter for a year at this point. I'd heard about this idea that the Fed was doing new things after the financial crash of 08. But this guy really laid it out for me clearly, and he blew my mind. And, and here's the headline of what I walked away from that day, is that after the crash of 2008, the Fed really broke out of its bounds. It, it, it started to do things that it had never done before. And, and really, the Federal Reserve has one superpower. It can create new dollars out of thin air. That's what makes it the most powerful institution on earth. It can, it's really the only institution that can create new US dollars. 
And between 2008 and 2000, late 2014, basically, about six years, the Fed printed three and a half times as much money as it had created in the first century of its existence, right? Wow. 350 years worth of money creation in like six years. And it, the Fed did this with a specific goal in mind. It, it wanted to promote job growth in the US. It wanted to promote overall economic growth. But the Fed can only create money, and we can talk about the mechanics of this, but it creates money on Wall Street. It creates money inside the bank accounts of these 24 big banks called primary dealers. So that $3.5 trillion is funneled right into the banking system at a moment when the Fed is also keeping interest rates pegged at zero. And so it has this effect of, I just picture the money as like a, a wave of liquid and it gets channeled into Wall Street and pushed out into riskier investments. Okay. That was the whole idea is like, we got to like keep interest rates at zero. So the banks really have no invest in incentive to save. And we're going to pump all trillions of dollars into the banking system. And that money's going to flow out into the markets for assets. And it's going to drive up those asset prices. And so this guy, this hedge fund trader was talking about how elevated the asset prices had become. And by assets, I mean, stocks, commercial real estate, uh, corporate debt, the, the, these prices were going higher and higher and higher because the Fed was pushing them higher. And I just thought, my God, this is such an important story. This is so new. And, and, and to your point about how like it, it wasn't just new and it didn't just affect everybody, but it was hidden behind this wall of technical jargon. And, and I realized like, I want to explain this to people so they can understand it in the way I did. And that's how it started. I'm sure we could do a whole show, a couple hours on like what the Fed is and, and its role in the banking system. But but you touched on, you know, obviously that the Fed creates dollars and those dollars have to first go into the bank accounts of, you know, the uh, really the big Wall Street banks. But could you for, for lay people and I, I'll put my hand up as well, certainly no expert on the Fed or our central banking system. Could you kind of touch on what the Fed is? what its role is in our banking sector, uh, just kind of at a, at a high level. Totally. And I can do it quick. And, you know, this book is really a history of just the last decade. I'm just trying to talk about what the Fed did between 2010 and 2020, because it was a, I mean, I hate to use this word. It, it was radical. I can't overstate it. What they did was unprecedented in terms of how easy they made the money. Okay. But, you know, I try to quickly walk through the history and here's how I would put it. Basically, if America could have existed without a central bank, we would have done it. We've, we've always been resistant to creating a government-run central bank. We chartered a national bank two times in our history and revoked the charter because we were worried that a central bank like that would have too much power, basically. Well, when you don't have a central bank, it's very hard to have kind of an advanced capitalist society. And the late 1800s, early 1900s were really just a mess, a financial mess. There, it's, it's fascinating. Like in the late 1800s, we had thousands of currencies in the United States. Like banks could issue their own currency. And the currency was tied to the value of gold. Um, and 
it, it, like I won't walk through the mechanics of it. I talk about it in the book, but it was just a mess. We had like long periods of deflation. We had periodic bank panics. And by 1907, we had this huge bank panic and people were like, we need more stability. And so there's this huge political argument and it, it really culminates in 1913 when Congress creates a central bank, the Federal Reserve Bank. And the Federal Reserve had two key jobs. The first was to create and manage a national currency. That thing we call a dollar is a U.S. Federal Reserve note. So the Fed creates a stable, well, its job is to make sure it's stable, but the Fed creates a uniform currency that we can use across the country. And then the second goal is that the Fed was supposed to be the lender of last resort so that when there was a banking panic, the central bank would be there and it could print money to loan to banks that were otherwise healthy to sort of stop the panic. So it was the lender of last resort to stop panics in the banking system. And it was the originator and creator of a uniform currency. And that's why we created the Fed. Hey, everybody. Sorry to interrupt. I want to thank another of our sponsors. That is DraftKings. From tee to green, get in on all the golf action with DraftKings Sportsbook. Right now, new customers who place their first wager on this weekend's golf tournament of $5 or more will receive a free bet equal to the amount you wager if your first bet loses, up to $1,000. Just because you aren't out on the course doesn't mean you can't have your shot at a big payday. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state, you can still drive for show and putt for dough with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Golf Contest. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes this week. How huge? Millions with a capital M huge. It's easy to play. Just pick six golfers, stay under the salary cap, and submit your lineup before the tournament tees off on Thursday. Don't miss out on all the action this week at DraftKings. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today. Use code NLU at sign up. New customers can place their first bet of $5 or more on the tournament. And if your bet loses, you still get a risk-free bet back up to $1,000. That's code NLU at DraftKings Sportsbook. And I want to thank our final sponsor today, and that is Whoop. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach and official fitness wearable of the PGA and LPGA tours. Monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop. Train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0 the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features a new smart alarm designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. Plus, it was designed with their new Anywhere technology, so you can wear it with their Whoop Body Sensor Enhanced Technical Garments. That's boxers, shorts, compression tops, bralettes, leggings, and more. Just remove the band from the device, slide it into the garment of your choice, and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. The other thing I want to mention is the all-new Health Monitor dashboard, which gives you a big-picture look at your overall health. Monitor key metrics like heart rate, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, skin temperature, and blood oxygen levels. You can even export 30-day health trends to share with your coach, trainer, PT, PCP, or physician. The all-new waterproof device is free when you sign up for a Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left of membership on your account, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. Right now, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use the code NLU15 at checkout. So go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com, enter NLU15 at checkout. 
to save 15%. Thank them for sponsoring the Trap Draw. And now back to our episode. So your book, as you said, it, it really focuses on the time period of 2010 to 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, your, your book opens that the very first character we're introduced to is a man named Tom Honig. Uh, he's the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, and he's in Washington, D.C. It's November of 2010, and the committee he's on, the FOMC, are, are about to take a vote. Not giving away too much, but you know, th- this, why are those three things important to your book? Why, why did you start there? And how do the, how do those three things uh, play a, a big role in what your book is? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that's a very broad question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, there's just so much to talk about. Um, I really like this. This sounds like I'm trying to hype a book, but I'm not. Um, the date of November 3rd, 2010 is a really important date in U.S. economic history. Uh, that's when the Fed started these experiments I'm talking about in the book. We had the financial crisis of 2008, a huge, just terrible downturn. Um, the Fed was at least partially, I would argue, largely responsible for the financial crisis of 2008. And, but it wasn't recognized. And, you know, the Fed just got praised for like bailing everybody out during the crash. But in 2010, the economy was recovering really slowly, which was expected because we'd had this huge debt crisis. And and the chairman of the Fed, Ben Bernanke, decides that they're going to do two experiments at once. They're going to keep the, the most important interest rate in America, the Fed funds rate, the short-term interest rate, they're going to keep this interest rate pegged at zero, which is, uh, let me temper my language, which is unprecedented. Um, you know, the short-term interest rate is what the Fed is known for controlling, and it had like brushed up against zero a couple times in the past, but Bernanke decided to keep it pinned at zero for years. And then on November 3rd, 2010, Bernanke says, not only are we going to keep interest rates at zero for a long time, we're going to use our power to pump new cash into the banking system. And this program, like all things at the Fed, has to have a stupefyingly opaque name. They call it quantitative easing. But the mechanics are really simple. The Federal Reserve First of all, I need to say it has 12 branches. It's kind of built to reflect the United States. It's like these 12 little banks in a network, okay? But the most powerful one is in New York City. And the New York City Fed has this trading desk that I've toured where these traders buy and sell assets. And and the way quantitative easing works is that a trader at the Fed in New York will call up JP Morgan, let's say, and say, hey, JP Morgan, I want to buy $8 billion worth of treasury bills from you. Okay, fine. JP Morgan sells $8 billion in treasury bills to the Fed, and the Fed trader says, okay, now look in your special account that we hold at the Fed. Boom, $8 billion just appeared. The Fed used a type of a keyboard, made that money appear. Quantitative easing is just replicating that transaction again and again and again until you have created like let's say in the first round, 600 billion new dollars inside the banking system. Okay, that's what the Fed started to do on November 3rd, 2010, to try to stimulate growth in the American economy. And that's what blew my mind so much when I interviewed that guy. I was like, what? This is, this is, I did not know about this. Well, 
the vote to do that round of quantitative easing was a vote of 11 against one. And the, and the one guy who voted against it was that guy you mentioned, Tom Honig, president of the Kansas City Fed. And the more I researched this guy, the more I realized his opposition to this plan was fascinating in, in, his, in, his, in his disputes about it. Like the reason he was against it was fascinating. He wasn't arguing right wing. He, he's kind of known as a conservative, but he was saying, you're going to distort the economy. You're going to create a massive asset bubble. You're going to in- increase wealth inequality. And this guy, Tom Honig, had been at the Fed since 1972. And I just realized his story was a great way to talk about the Fed and his, his opposition to this program actually turned out in retrospect to have been really prescient. I mean, this guy called it and, and yet he was voted down. So that's why he's the main character to start the book. One of the aspects of the book I love is you kind of have, have a timeline, right? Obviously from 2010 up to really present day and interwoven in that timeline, you go back and you talk about, you know, how, how we got here, how we arrived here. And, you know, this can be, you explore Tom Honig's personal background and, and the events that influenced his thinking leading up to that initial, um, or not the initial, but that vote in 2010, where your book initially begins. And you go back and talk about, you know, certain bank crises between really going back from the, the 70s, 80s, 90s, the, the 200s, before we hit the, the big great recession, which again, kicks off where your timeline really starts. Uh, I, I guess I, in, in saying all of that, and in your research, I have to imagine you just had to be sitting there kind of shaking your head with like, it just feels like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Like that, that's the only takeaway I, I, I kind of get from this. Yeah. And okay, let me get to that and, and sort of fill in exactly what you're saying, which is that, you know, the book opens with Tom Honig voting against quantitative easing. And Tom Honig was really, I'll use the word maligned or smeared in the media. He, he was portrayed as this like inflation hawk who was against Fed action. But when I went back and read through the actual internal debates and read the interviews this guy had given, I saw that his critique really had very little to do with worries over the creation of inflation. And uh, I interviewed him and got a better understanding of why he had voted no. And so the book opens with him voting no, but then I go back to show how this guy came to that place. And, and, and you're exactly right that he came to this place where he, in many ways, threw away his reputation. He became remembered as this cranky dissenter because he voted no. He came to that place because of what he had personally seen over the decades inside the Fed. And the fact is, when the, when the Fed gets it wrong, when, when it makes mistakes, uh, it really creates large-scale problems in our economy. I'll, you know, I'll say disaster. And, and the first example of that was the great inflation of the 1970s, which was actually two inflations happening at once. You had price inflation rising, and then you had this massive uh, uh, increase in, in, the, in the price of assets like real estate, um, oil, stocks, um, bank uh, assets. These, these asset prices rose really high along with consumer prices. 
it all came crashing down in the early 80s. We had more bank failures in the early 80s than we'd had since the Depression. And Tom Honig had seen all that firsthand. In the late 90s, the Fed kept interest rates too low for too long, and it fueled another massive asset bubble in the stock market. The dot-com bubble was fueled by the Fed. That came crashing down, led to a big recession in 91. I'm sorry, in, in 2001, before even the September 11th attacks happened. And then, of course, you have, have, you have the mother of all asset bubbles of, of the 2000s, when the Fed kept rates really low during the mid-2000s and fueled the housing bubble, which exploded. And so this guy, Tom Honig, had seen this happen again and again and again. And that's why in 2010, he was saying, you are going to create more problems than you solve by keeping interest rates at zero and pumping this money into the banking system. You're going to fuel more asset bubbles. You're going to widen the gap between the very richest people who own all these assets and then everybody else who you know makes a living from a paycheck. And then importantly, once you start doing this of keeping interest rates super low and pumping all this money in, it's going to be impossible to stop without creating a market crash. It's, it's a famous cliche. When you take the punch bowl away, you know the party ends in a fistfight or however you want to put it. I mean, when you take the cheap money away, you have a crash. And, and that's why he voted against it. And you know, your question was like, it, it, it seems like the more things change, the more they stay the same or like we never learn. And to me, I just have to say it's kind of irritating in modern times to watch this cycle replay where the Fed keeps interest rates very low and pumps up asset prices, juices the stock market. And of course, nobody on CNBC complains when that's happening because they're making a lot of money off of it. But then when there's a correction, the Fed has to step in and bail them out even more. And, and, and then the Fed is like hailed as, as like the rescue squad in the media. And, and I feel like we're missing a, a more important story underneath it. And I, I guess something I'm struck by is the people, you know, Tom Honig was voting alone. He was the lone dissenter, which means at least on the, the FOMC board of 12 people, there are 11 people voting yes. And these aren't dumb people. You know, these aren't people that are oblivious to the history of the Fed. In your opinion, what are the forces that cause you know the, these people to kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again? I, I, because I, I don't think it's necessarily. I, I'm trying to think of the right word. Like evil is too strong of a word. That they're not corrupted. Uh, I, but, but can you speak to like why we kind of keep finding ourselves? in these same situations with, with history replaying, like what are the forces acting on the 11 yes votes, if you will? It's a great question. Okay. And, and first of all, for background, as you pointed out, like the fed looks like the United States and it's this network of 12 banks and it's run by that committee. You just mentioned the FOMC, the federal open markets committee, consider that like it's just like the executive leadership board of the Fed. They get together and they decide what the Fed's going to do. And there are 12 voting members. And yeah, as you pointed out, Hanna was the only person who voted no. Okay. When I started reporting this book, I 
had the mentality of like, you know, I wouldn't want to be the Fed chairman. What a hard job uh, or Fed chairwoman in the case of Janet Yellen. I mean, these folks are acting out of the best intentions that they have. They're doing their best. They're facing complicated problems. Um, you know, there might be some problems with quantitative easing, but like, geez, there's no, no such thing as a perfect policy. That was my mentality going into this book. And I just have to own the fact that my view really changed as I reported this. And um, <laughs> look, I, ha- I hate to say this. The, the leadership of the Fed is political. You know, they, they want to present themselves as these sort of high-minded PhD economists at this sort of Olympian level who are just sort of solving math equations. Like the famous uh, Fed chairman, Alan Greenspan, is the one who really created this image of like the all-seeing oracle math genius. But in fact, they are human beings making policy decisions that create winners and losers. And, and your question is like, well, you know, why is there this like center of gravity in the 2010s toward this policy of keeping interest rates at zero, pumping money into Wall Street? Now, I don't have an like easy, satisfactory answer, but I can tell you some of the stuff I found in my reporting, which is that the, 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 this board of leaders, the FOMC, I, I interviewed tons of them and, and talked to them. And it's so interesting that, you know, starting in about 2013, there was a lot of intense resistance inside the leadership body of the Fed to these policies. And, and there was a group of three people who really were pushing against the chairman, Ben Bernanke. Okay. And these people were saying, you've got to stop doing these easy money policies. You're stoking up these asset prices. You're, you're creating what's going to be another market crash. And we've got to stop. This isn't really making any benefit. And at the same time, it's piling up long-term risks. And those three people were Fed governors, Betsy Duke, Jeremy Stein, and then this guy named Jay Powell, a Fed governor who's now the chairman of the Fed. And Jay Powell, I've got it all. I mean, the transcripts are public. He was saying, you're going to create a market crash. You're stoking asset bubbles. Uh, other people like Richard Fisher said, we are, we are only benefiting the very richest of the rich. We're not benefiting the working class. But Ben Bernanke, the chairman, personally, he talks about this openly. You know, he would lobby the members of the leadership committee, phone calls, one-on-one meetings. Look, how can I get you to come along? You got to vote with me. Uh, the Fed governor, Betsy Duke, told me on the record in the book that Ben Bernanke wouldn't accept a no vote from a governor. And so he would lobby them personally. It was a political decision. And Ben Bernanke used another political tool that was really powerful. He would go out and give a speech and indicate, look, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to do more quantitative easing, which creates a so-called announcement effect where markets start to anticipate it. So then prices rise. And if you vote no, you're going to create a downward correction. So he would, he would push the committee using these political tactics and, and I just want to say, like, let's look at the broader landscape of incentives, okay? If you're pumping, in, in the case of an, a round of quantitative easing that the Fed did in 2013, I'm sorry, they started in late 2012, went into 2013, they pumped $1.6 trillion into the Wall Street banking system. 
if you're doing that, do you know who's not going to complain? JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, Blackstone, BlackRock, um, Carlyle Group. These firms are, are not going to complain. They're not going to hammer you because you're, you're creating a, a market bonanza for them. And, and I do think that that plays a role. I mean, I'm not saying, oh, my God, it's corruption. They're bags of cash. And there's some uh, grotesque uh, like conspiracy where Wall Street runs the Fed. Just look at the incentive structure. You know, no one's going to push back when you do policies like this that benefit Wall Street first. And that's what I just I keep coming back to is this idea of like a soft corruption, right, for lack of a better term, where it seems like to, to your point exactly, the the interests of the money to lead really just time and again win out over Main Street, if you will, for, for lack of a better term. I I mean, is there is there another way to to read kind of what what is happening? Not there's no other way to read my book. Let me put it that <laughs> yeah, way. Right. You've nailed it. And yeah. that, okay, that's the story. I mean, that's just a huge part of this story. And, and I'm trying to lay it out in clear terms that anybody can read with open sourcing. My end notes are really long. All my sources are out there, no off the record, anything. And listen, there are two main characters of this book. Part one focuses on this guy, Thomas Honig, who really tried to stop these policies at the Fed. Part two focuses on this guy, Jay Powell, who became chairman of the Fed and is now pushing these policies. And it's so interesting to me. You talk about soft corruption or, or this like, you know, whose who's, who's viewpoint, who, whose mentality and whose interest do you take into account? You know, Jay Powell was literally born and raised as a member of the American political financial elite. He was born in, in suburban uh, D.C. in Bethesda. He went to a very uh, nice Georgetown prep school where like Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh and U.S. senators graduated from that school. He went to work on Wall Street almost right off the bat after you know, getting a law degree and working with a federal judge. He, he went from Wall Street to the Treasury Department. Then he went back to Wall Street. And what's so fascinating is, you know, Jay Powell, as I lay out in the book, like he not just participated, but became very, very rich by working in these private equity markets where he would package and sell corporate debt to do company buyouts, which is exactly the kind of financialized system that the Fed was encouraging in the 2010s by keeping interest rates so low and, and pu pushing all this cash into the system. It benefited people like Powell's employer, Carlyle Group, uh, benefited them tr tremendously. There's no conspiracy. It's not like Carlyle Group gave Jay Powell these marching orders. and and. Listen, Jay Powell's a really good guy. Um, any of your listeners would love to play golf with Jay Powell. He's smart. He's honest. He, he's a good guy. But he comes from that world. And the people who have his ear are, you know, Larry Fink. I always mix up BlackRock and Blackstone, but it's the biggest hedge fund. Isn't it BlackRock, I think? Oh, God. Larry Fink's I, company. We could Google it. It's one of those. Yeah. That it guy talks is to BlackRock. Larry Fink is at BlackRock. Yeah. I mean, there's this great story in the New York Times about Larry Fink at BlackRock uh, talking to Jay Powell something like 10 times a day or something crazy during the crash of 2020. 
these people run the world uh, or, you know, they, they run the Fed. Uh, Timothy Geithner is exactly the same. New York Federal Reserve president who became Treasury secretary and then went to go work for a private equity firm. It's just the same kind of viewpoint mentality and interests. And, and that's just how it is. Um, and, and, and for, you know, just even forget that, just look at who's consistently winning from these policies. It really is not this broad cross-section of people in America that we could call wage earners who like make their earning from a paycheck. People who own assets benefit um, because they get to enjoy the money during the run-up and then there's a downturn and then they can get bailed out again by the Fed on the other side. Um, yeah. So, and, and I've got to say too quickly, like this guy, Tom Honig, I mean, after he was at the Fed, he goes to D.C. and he comes. This is a supposed right wing crank. He comes up with this idea to like break up the big banks. He becomes vice chairman of the FDIC and he says, hey, we need to break up the big banks because they're enjoying huge taxpayer bailouts. And he gets basically laughed out of town. And and this is a supposed right wing guy. So, yeah, I think that there's uh, people who win time and again in in Washington, D.C., and there's there's so much good stuff in your book. You, you mentioned Jerome Powell. Uh, you detail the, the big deal he worked on, the Rex Nord Corporation. You profile uh, somebody that worked for Rex Nord and has been laid off and has subsequently struggled to find these more blue collar manufacturing type jobs. And, and then and not to like just glaze over that, but I want people to get the book and, and they can obviously read through all that. And then you kind of approach current day, right? We, we get to you know, the, the whole COVID crisis and there's an invisible bailout that I think myself included, not a lot of people even know about. Uh, you talk about the winners and losers from the, the PPP and other COVID bailout funds. Um, I, I, I guess where I, I want to end our time together is I, I, I imagine, you know, if your book came out in January of 2022, I imagine you're reporting let alone, or I guess you're writing, let alone your reporting, had to have ended somewhere in late 2020, if not early 2021. Has anything since that time to today, I guess, surprised you? Obviously, we see markets cratering that the Fed at least says right now they want to raise interest rates. I, I guess my, my question or what I'm hoping you could speak of is almost like a, a postscript to your book. That's a great question. So, the book goes up to February 2021. I mean, I like typed the last sentence and shipped it off to the publisher. Because okay. like. <laughs> I know the editing and you got to go through. I, I know that's a whole rigmarole. So, you know, I, I'm sure that was I, I knew that was a good chunk of time there. Totally. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a reality of book writing. There's a long gap. And this gap was actually short of like nine months between when I finished it, when it came out somewhere in that ballpark. But a key thing was, Hey, you know, dear reader, I, I really want to help you understand what happened during the 2010s because it's going to define everything that happens over the next five years. I want you to have a nice workable framework of what they did and how it's affecting what's happening right now. Because, you know, reporters, our job is to, you know, we're really good at looking backward and describing what happened now you've got that in your back pocket and you can better understand what the situation is today. 
So it's pretty fascinating to me that, you know, the book ends in February, 2021, the COVID bailouts that the fed committed were breathtaking everybody involved. I mean, and I'm talking like hardcore cynical jaded bond traders were calling me like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. The fed in 2020 directly purchased corporate junk debt. And, and when you read the book, you, I think it helps give an appreciation of why that's so astounding. They are they're they're expanding their safety net to include all of these assets that they help pump up. They they bailed out these bond traders, and this guy um, Scott Minard at Guggenheim was saying that basically the Fed just socialized the corporate junk debt market by bailing it out. Okay, so that's what happened in 2020. And remember at the beginning, I said the Fed printed. Three and a half trillion dollars in like six years, three and a half centuries worth of money printing. Yeah. In 2020, the Fed printed 300 years worth of money in about two and a half months. The, the Fed balance sheet, which reflects how much money it prints, the Fed balance sheet was three and a half trillion when COVID hit, which was by historical standards enormous. It's nine trillion now. I, I can't overstate what, how far out on the ledge the Fed has gotten. And so the book ends with Tom Honig actually talking about what a fragile state we're in because of this. And uh, I, I'm going to put this really simply. There, <laughs> the Fed has pumped all this money into asset markets and elevated their prices really high. If interest rates ever start to rise on these longer term safe assets like treasury bills, those asset prices will collapse that the Fed has been pumping up. I explain in the book why all this works. And the book kind of ends with this, you know, if you were to put it in the form of a GIF, it would be that thing of Wiley Coyote running over thin air, spinning his feet. Like that's where the US economy is at the end of my book. And it's frankly a little bit sobering. And so what surprised everybody in the years since was that we had price inflation at 8%. The the shocking outburst of price inflation was surprising and 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 historic. I mean, we haven't seen inflation this hot since the great inflation of the 70s started to kind of cool down in, in the, like 1981-ish. I, I was and gonna say I've I've read 40-year highs on inflation. Totally. Inflation hasn't been this high since the early 80s, and that's really the tail end of the great inflation of the 70s. And so that was a huge surprise. The Fed publicly got everything wrong about that, which the book shows the Fed's been getting it wrong on inflation for 10 years. Like that's just in the book. No one can deny it. Um, the guy who wrote the bad forecast is quoted in the book talking about how embarrassed he is by it. So to me, what's happening is that this high inflation is going to force the Fed to tighten the money supply. And, and this can that's being kicked down the road, you know, like to use another cliche, the bill's going to have to be paid. Uh, and, and that's where we are right now. So uh, two things and quickly, because we're, we're running it up against the, the time I asked you for. But um, I, I think, first of all, I got done reading your book and immediately recommended it to my dad. He's an old dyed in the wool accountant, you know, very financially literate and all that stuff. And the way I described it to him, I said, this reminds me so much of 
The Big Short by Michael Lewis. But the the key difference, as I see it, is we're in the moment still. And, and I think that's so rare and yet like such a wonderful thing for readers, uh, which I want to commend you on. I, I'm curious, one, if you think that's a fair characterization. And then two, kind of piggybacking on, on what you just said, I graduated college in 2007. You know, by the time I had really any money to, to start investing, I, I've, I've essentially grown up in a world where the overriding mantra was just buy the dip. You know, anytime stocks go down, don't worry about it, just buy. And I, I'm curious what you would say to people such as myself who, you know, all we've known is kind of the pal put and buy the dip. And it feels like we need to like relearn everything about investing because we're entering a, a brand new, a brand new world. It seems like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a bit sobering. So how do I make this quick? First of all, yeah, we're in the moment right now. Um, I actually had this debate last night uh, with a Brookings Institution pro Ben Bernanke Fed type guy. And he said, you know, the Fed got really great marks for its response in 2020 for the COVID bailouts. And I'm like, we are halfway through that story. That thing's not over yet. They temporarily put the fire out, but it was like smoldering underneath, whatever metaphor you want to use. This is what's so dangerous about inflation is that it challenges the buy the dip theory. The, the buy the dip theory, the Fed put has become like the, the, the Bible of investing. Hey, don't worry about it. You know, the Fed's going to come in, the Fed will uh, keep a floor under asset prices. You don't have to worry. And I mean, geez, Louise, when COVID hit, uh, the stock market lost, what, like 40% of its value or something, uh, somewhere in that ballpark, and then bounced back to regain all of it, and then bounced back to new heights entirely because of the Fed. But inflation means the Fed put might not be there now, because if they try to institute the put again, inflation will just embed itself and start to grow even more. So we are potentially at a moment where people need to relearn everything. And that's what makes it so fragile and, and so potentially dangerous is that now, if the Fed's not going to be there to print money and, and keep those asset prices, we're, we might have to discover a new floor. And quickly, I'll say, like the stock market is just the canary in the coal mine. It, it, right behind that is the corporate debt market, which is one of the biggest bubbles the Fed inflated during the 2010s. Total corporate debt rose from $6 trillion to north of $10 trillion. These are risky leverage loans. That's when the rubber is going to start hitting the road. And like, I'm not psyched about any of this stuff. I'm just reporting what I think I've found. So, um, yeah, I feel like it's a, a volatile moment. And the, and the more we can kind of teach ourselves about it, hopefully the better we can respond to it. Yeah. A amen. Uh Christopher, I wish I could talk to you for, for three more hours, but I will let you go. I, I really, really appreciate your time today, your insights. And like I said, um, The Lords of Easy Money, it's, it's a wonderful book. Uh, I, I believe, as, as you said, too, we, we are in the moment. It's very timely for anybody with even a passing interest in monetary policy and, and markets. And, and even if you don't really have a passing interest, it's very easy to read. It's a very 
engaging uh, narrative. And so I would encourage everybody to check it out. And thank you so much for your time. And I, I hope you have a great rest of the week. My pleasure. You too. Thank you. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who me?